This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order after some scheduling snafus and snow days that forced uh, Senator Booker and me out with snowball fights on the lawn and everything else, but it wasn't very conducive to hearings and uh, people being here on time. So we appreciate your indulgence uh, in, in uh, having this hearing postponed until now. Uh, but we are considering nominees to serve as the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs and Ambassador to South Sudan, uh, Mr. Hushek, who some time has passed since we met, uh, but I'm grateful to you and Ms. Madison for taking the time to meet with me prior to this hearing. The Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement, or INL, is tasked with the responsibility for a number of important issues that lie at the heart of some of Congress's and the administration's priorities. These include helping foreign um, countries combat transnational crime, the illicit drug trade, human trafficking, and wildlife trafficking. I look forward to hearing how Ms. Madison will work to prioritize the many issues that, if confirmed, will fall under her purview, and how Congress can work with INL to achieve its mission. We are also considering the nomination of a new ambassador to South Sudan when the government uh, is, by all accounts, abdicating its responsibility to represent its people. There's never been a greater need for a skilled, for skilled diplomacy in uh, the world's newest country. Uh, the committee stands eager to hear about the impact that the uh, you know, deteriorating man-made humanitarian crisis, uh, how, what the impact this has on U.S. interests in the region, and uh, what we might do to be able to turn the tide there. Uh, we're so grateful that uh, we are going to have an ambassador to South Sudan. It's been uh, needed. Thank each of you for your time and sharing your expertise with us. With that, we'll recognize Senator Booker for opening comments. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Flake. And I just want to reiterate, I really appreciate your flexibility. I think I was just told that one of you were uh, overseas and rearranged your schedule. It's a lot to go through, a lot of logistics. I just appreciate your patience uh, with us and the, the many extraneous circumstances. Uh, I'm grateful, as always, to uh, Chairman Flake uh, for his leadership uh, and focus uh, uh, and what he brings to the table. Um, the two before you before me, your years of service speak for themselves, your commitment to country, as well as to the larger cause of humanity. Uh, should you be confirmed, you will both arrive at these positions in, in challenging and very difficult times. Uh, Ms. Madison, the Bureau you will lead, if confirmed, will experience savage budget cuts, about 40%, uh, uh, if the President's budget is adopted. Uh, it's something uh, that I think is a cause for concern. Uh, the budget comes at a time when heroin and cocaine use is increasing uh, along with the number of heroin-related deaths in, in recent years. This is a real crisis being felt in communities all across our country, including in New Jersey. Uh, there are global supply chains and markets uh, for these illicit substances that demand robust multilateral uh, cooperation, uh, as well as enforcement that I believe will be forfeited um, uh, for more punitive measures against individuals uh, as opposed to making recovery uh, for consumers, uh, uh, difficult for consumers, uh, and investing in the kind of things that really make a difference. Your strategies, your wisdom, your insight uh, is really essential to help us uh, to advance success at a time that, frankly, I, I'm just frustrated that, that we are not making more progress. Uh, Mr. Hushek, if you confirmed, you're literally going into a war zone. Um, and uh, I'm concerned about the sa your safety, the safety of our personnel, uh, in such uh, hardship posts. Uh, my concern is compounded, actually, by uh, not only the deteriorating effects in South Sudan, 
but I just feel that we have no articulated strategy uh, to deal with this crisis. Um, uh, and, and more than that, I have to say, uh, I'm very concerned about this administration's um, uh, concern about this crisis. Um, there is a moral outrage going on on the planet Earth uh, at a scale and uh, a level of gravity that should anguish the souls uh, of uh, every American. Uh, but there is a lack of attention in this administration coming from the top. Uh, there is demeaning and degrading comments spewing from the White House uh, that undermine the larger diplomatic efforts. Uh, South Sudan uh, is at a point uh, where uh, all of us, um, uh, regardless of country, uh, this is a test of the moral will uh, of humanity. Uh, and I just feel that you are going into a challenge that I believe uh, you can make a, a profound, a profound difference. And so I just want to say, um, as an American, as a senator, but, but even more so um, as a human being, uh, that uh, I pray for your success uh, under these circumstances. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing you maybe be able to articulate uh, uh, with more clarity what the administration uh, strategy is. Um, your job is one of the more singularly important ones uh, for alleviating suffering on this planet and ending a, a nightmare uh, that is unimaginable, frankly, uh, for those who have not witnessed a broad-scale famine and, and suffering like we're seeing in South Sudan. I'm angry um, uh, that my country, who's led with light uh, and generosity and love, uh, is not showing that in this case. Uh, so I want to thank you both again for being here. I'm very much looking forward to uh, to, to, to having a conversation, um, and uh, I will pass it back to our, to our chairman. Thank you, Senator Booker. Uh, we'll now turn to our nominees. First nominee, Kirsten Madison, Deputy Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies with the American Enterprise Institute. She's well known to this committee, having served as Deputy Staff Director just a few years ago and as professional staff member under the leadership of uh, former Chairman Jesse Helms. She also has previous experience at State, the NSC, and the Coast Guard. Our second nominee is Thomas Hushek, career diplomat who's serving as the acting assistant secretary for sta of state oh, in the State Department's Bureau of Conflict and Stabilization Operations. He's served in eight countries overseas, including as deputy chief of mission at the U.S. embassies of uh, Tajikistan and Micronesia, a bit far apart there. <laughs> Additionally, he's completed two tours in Afghanistan. With that, uh, we'll recognize Ms. Madison. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. Um, thank you, first of all, for the opportunity to testify as the nominee to be the Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. I'm deeply honored by the President's nomination uh, and at the prospect of serving my country again if I'm confirmed. Uh, since we started dating in high school, my husband Matthew, who's here today, has been my biggest supporter, my most honest critic, my most avid cheerleader. Uh, it means a lot to know that he's here. Um, to my family, my brothers Jay and Raise Eric. Raise your hand there, Matthew. Okay, right behind. Right. <laughs> Thank the long-suffering husband. Um, my, uh, to my brothers, Jay and Eric, and my parents, Lynn and Catherine Madison, my mother happened to have flown in from uh, Portugal with me last night, so she's here. Um, I know that I would not be sitting here without their support um, and encouragement. Uh, the INL team, led by the Assistant Secretary, is a critical player in tackling some of the most challenging issues confronting our nation, including the ongoing opioid crisis and the efforts of criminal networks around the world to optimize their business models at the expense of democratic governance. 
INL programs help to secure our borders and cities by strengthening the ability of our partners to address threats before they reach our shores. INL also builds the capabilities and capacity of our international partners to defend their own citizens and systems of governments against transnational organized crime, corruption, terrorism, and in fact, the points where those things link. Uh, importantly, INL is helping governments to build and strengthen the rule of law that is so essential to economic opportunity, uh, the kind of thing that the U.S. works for at home and abroad. Uh, through the work of INL, the U.S. has proven over the decades that its influence is profound, that it's capable of driving progress in the global effort to confront crime and corruption. And through this work, the U.S. has embraced the idea that safeguarding our nation and its interests requires us to be engaged and creative and to actively cultivate the trust and confidence it takes to work effectively and secure the buy-in of our international partners. This will continue to be an essential goal of INL if I'm confirmed. Through a career of more than 20 years, I've worked on governance, counter-narcotics, and counter-terrorism matters for the U.S. Senate, uh, the House, the Departments of Homeland Security and State, at the Organization of American States, and on the National Security Council staff. Although focused heavily on the Western Hemisphere, um, I have also run programs in Asia, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East to build law enforcement and operational capacity of our partners and work to gather partners to tackle global issues from piracy to illegal fishing to port security. INL has a significant budget even in these times of financial pressures. As a former senior executive at State and the Department of Homeland Security, I understand the value of engaged management effective interagency partnering, and securing buy-in from international partners who share our interests. While my Coast Guard program was on a much smaller scale, I think thinking critically about strategy, setting priorities, and making tough choices about how to best advance U.S. interests are no less essential to being the Assistant Secretary of State for INL. If confirmed, my top priorities have been set by the President. Battling the opioid epidemic and redoubling efforts to counter the multi-headed hydra that is transnational organized crime. These are global efforts requiring our ongoing attention from Beijing to the Balkans to the Liberia to the United Nations system and beyond. There will be important diplomacy engagement to be done in the Western Hemisphere, where the region-wide consensus we once had for counter-drug and crime efforts has ebbed. For our own security and prosperity, we need to help the rule of law recapture the momentum in this region and to help countries recover stolen or illicit assets and put them to good purpose. Likewise, the uptick in the production of illicit drugs in Afghanistan, Colombia, and Mexico all point to the need to redouble efforts to cement cooperation with them, even as we work on the rest of the narcotic and crime continuum internationally and at home. In recent history, the INL Bureau has benefited from the extraordinary leadership of Ambassador Brownfield and the exceptional dedication and capabilities of the foreign and civil service professionals who make up its ranks. If confirmed, it will be my honor to work alongside them, uh, for the moment, for now, I am just grateful for their wisdom as I prepared for this hearing. In my experience, we're at our most successful when Congress and the executive branch share clarity of purpose and a long-term commitment to building institutions, forging partnerships, and constructing frameworks for international cooperation. If confirmed, I hope to work closely with this committee as we address the great challenges of our time. Again, thank you very much for this opportunity, um, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Madison. Mr. Hushek. Chairman Flake, Ranking Member Booker, and distinguished members of the committee. I am honored and humbled to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of South Sudan. I'd like to thank my family, friends, and colleagues whose encouragement and support have helped shape my career and made this moment possible. If confirmed, I look forward to working with this committee 
and other members of Congress to advance our nation's priorities in South Sudan, leading our mission in Juba, and engage South Sudanese people and, and press the government and other actors to find a meaningful and durable solution to the ongoing conflict and Africa's largest humanitarian crisis. Mr. Chairman, uh, you and the members of this committee are well aware of the tragedy that is playing out in South Sudan. The independence of this nation in 2011 captured the world's attention and became a symbol for freedom, resilience, and the unbridled potential of Africa. The global community and the United States in particular offered unequivocal support to the South Sudanese people who for decades had known nothing but oppression, deprivation, and war. The American people provided vast amounts of technical advice, development assistance, and goodwill to support the new country's aspirations. But tragically, two years after independence, South Sudan's leaders in government and opposition plunged their country into an ever-worsening conflict and humanitarian crisis, betraying the dreams of the South Sudanese people for peace and development. Since the outbreak of hostilities in December 2013, South Sudanese civilians have experienced unspeakable cruelty at the hands of government forces and other armed actors, including widespread sexual violence used as a weapon of war. More than four million South Sudanese have been displaced from their homes. 70% of children are out of school with roughly 19,000 of them forced to serve in armed groups. Without sustained humanitarian assistance and improved access, more than seven million people will face life-threatening hunger because of conflict this year. Even with this extreme level of need, parties to the conflict continue to impede delivery of humanitarian aid and South Sudan is considered the most dangerous country in the world for humanitarians. The economy is in shambles, and South Sudan's modest oil wealth is being siphoned away through widespread corruption, fueling the conflict rather than the young nation's development. Despite the failure of South Sudan's leaders to act responsibly, the United States has not abandoned the South Sudanese people. As the single largest contributor of aid, we have provided more than $3 billion in emergency humanitarian assistance since fighting began in 2013. The American people should be proud of our leading role in the international effort to stave off famine and provide critical services such as water, nutrition, sanitation, and healthcare. The United States is also supporting regional efforts to negotiate a peaceful resolution of the conflict. Last December, the warring parties agreed to a cessation of hostilities as a first step in this process. Unfortunately, that agreement has been repeatedly violated by the signatories. We are working with African and international allies to press for its implementation and to apply consequences for violators. The United States will continue to take action against those who have fomented violence, obstructed the peace process, and enriched themselves through corruption, while so many of South Sudan's people have been driven from their homes or on the verge of famine. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I will press the leaders of all parties to the conflict in South Sudan, and especially the government, to disavow violence and make the hard compromises necessary to achieve a peaceful resolution of their political differences. I will work tirelessly to urge respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms so that the people of South Sudan might once again aspire to a peaceful and prosperous future. I will work to ensure that America's humanitarian traditions are upheld and our generosity is not squandered. And finally, Mr. Chairman, I assure you that if confirmed, I will keep as my top priority working to ensure the safety and security of US citizens in South Sudan. Thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to answering questions you might have.
Well, thank you both for the testimony. Let me start with uh, Ms. Madison. Uh, when we were in my office uh, a while ago, we talked about uh, wildlife trafficking. Um, Senator Booker and I just returned a trip to Africa. It's an extremely important source of, of revenue uh, for the countries in Southern Africa and uh, certainly a, a form of enjoyment for a lot of uh, American tourists and others who go to see um, obviously large herds of elephants and remaining rhinos. And uh, what what is our administration's policy with regard to wildlife trafficking and what will your office do uh, with regard to implementation of that policy? Senator, thank you for the question. Um, in fact, I noticed this week there was an article about um, sales of endangered species parts on, I think it was Facebook. You know, it's a constantly evolving um, issue. Uh, wildlife trafficking is another form of transnational organized crime. Um, it, it, it unfortunately is a very uh, lucrative one for, for criminals. Uh, there's high demand, there's high return on investment, and there's still unfortunately a relatively low risk of, of being caught. From an INL perspective, um, again, this is transnational organized crime. So the Bureau works in a variety of different, different ways. Um, it works at the international multilateral level um, to make the UN Convention on Transnational Organized Crime real and to help countries make use of that, the tools in that, um, to go to work on transnational organized crime. Uh, in addition, it works to build an investigator capacity, law enforcement capacity, prosecutorial capacity in countries where this is an issue. Um, and it very specifically has programs on uh, wildlife trafficking. There are 20 different programs, for example, in Africa um, that are designed to help countries take this on. It is a big, it's a big source of income. Uh, Interpol did a report not too long ago that said environmental crimes was between 100 billion and 250 billion dollars a year. So some segment of that is wildlife trafficking. Even if it's at the low end of that, that's an enormous boon uh, to criminal organizations. So I think INL has a focus on this particularly in Africa because it's a particular challenge, but there's also work in Latin America and in Asia. Uh, so that's kind of the basic laydown, sir. Thanks. When we met, uh, you told me there's an endless desire for US engagement in training and law enforcement issues. Uh, that the toughest decisions uh, for deciding uh, what our limits and prioritize, uh, priorities will be. Can you talk a little about that? How do we prioritize uh, what I'm sure is a lot of demand for, for uh, our involvement there? Senator, I think that, it, yes, there is always an endless demand for our engagement, for our constructive engagement, for our support, for our tools, uh, you know, law enforcement capacity, uh, whichever piece of it you want to talk about. And I think that what you, what you really have to do uh, when you're confronted with global demand and also global challenges is figure out where you can most closely align with U.S. national security interests. Um, obviously, transnational organized crime and the opioid crisis have been prioritized by the president. But I also, um, I think you have to look at the question of where you can have impact. Uh, in some circumstances, you can't have impact because you don't have a willing partner um, or, or because the security circumstances on the ground uh, don't allow you to. So I think it's about alignment with national security objectives. It's about being realistic about where you can have an impact. Um, and also, I, I, I think in thinking about these things, you have to also look at the question because most of the issues that INL deals with are transnational in some way, you have to look for where there are opportunities to work regionally. I think wildlife trafficking is a good example of, of where you have sort of a sweep of crime and where regional efforts can be powerful. Right. Thank you. Mr. Hushek, 
we've been without an ambassador to South Sudan for almost a year now. It was the summer of uh, 2017. How do we uh, um, put an ambassador there now without lending legitimacy uh, to the government uh, and uh, their actions of late? What's the State Department prepared to do uh, to, uh, to uh, tell Juba that what's been going on is certainly not acceptable? Thank you. Yes, it's been um, since last summer, since an ambassador was there. Of course, our embassy is remaining active. Um, but as an ambassador, if confirmed, one of the main things I will um, be committed to is delivering those tough messages to the highest level of the government as possible. Another very important part of what, um, what I and the embassy will be working on is, is communicating and relating to the people of South Sudan. Um, and, and that goes beyond just government officials. Um, right now, in order to put pressure on the government of South Sudan and the other parties to the conflict, um, we are, um, um, the State Department and the U.S. government are putting on a series of escalating uh, mechanisms to, um, to, to force the parties to take seriously the political talks that are going on to, to end the conflict. So last fall, um, shortly after the ambassador left, we put in some sanctions against three high-level individuals, and then another one in December, a business associate of the, of the president. And we, in February, we instituted a, a national arms embargo uh, um, preventing arms and ammunitions going from the US there to, um, to um, verify a, a effective policy that we had in place already. And, um, and also this spring, we have worked through multilateral organizations to renew the mandates of the UN mission in South Sudan, as well as the uh, UN Human Rights Commission for South Sudan. So those kind of multilateral mechanisms as well. All during that period, we've also been supporting these, um, these ongoing um, peace talks called the High Level Revitalization Forum. Um, um, coordinating among the donor nations and most importantly with the neighboring countries to South Sudan to put pressure on on the government and then the other parties. Thank you. Senator Booker. I'm going to defer um, to Senator Thank you very much, Chairman Booker. Um, thank you both for being willing to take on these very important roles at this difficult time. Um, I'm going to begin with you, Ms. Madison, because you, you talked about the role of the INL in the whole drug trafficking issue, and as you may be aware, New Hampshire is one of those states in the U.S. that's at the epicenter of the opioid and heroin epidemic that we're experiencing. Um, we have the highest rate of fentanyl overdose deaths in the country. So I wonder if you can talk about what more... Um, INL can do to counter the flow of fentanyl in particular, but other drugs, of course, and what more you think um, the Congress can do to help support your efforts? Senator, thank you very much for the question. I think if there's any one issue that was raised, as I did my cons consultative meetings on the Hill, uh, whether at the staff level or the senator level, it was this one. Uh, because of the impact in so many communities uh, and cities and families in this country. Um, I think INL is working in a very concerted way on this um, already um, in the sense that uh, it's engaged at 
at the multilateral level, at the international narcotics um, control level, um, at, in the UN uh, Office on Drugs and Crime, to build the frameworks, to, to strengthen the frameworks that we have to control drugs, um, and also uh, to make use of the tools that are in those agreements and in those um, organizations to actually get more drugs under the under opioids specifically, under international control. You know, we control th many things domestically, mm -hmm. um, and we need other countries to do it domestically, but that international control piece is really essential. I think INL's done some very effective work already uh, to get more drugs under control and also to be, try to accelerate the pace of control. Because what the drug organizations do is they change the formula and then they have another drug um, and, you, and you get in this endless cycle of trying to get ahead of what they're up to. So I think the international piece of it is important. I think it's gonna remain important and I think um, in addition to, to being a framework and a way of working together, there are tools built into those international agreements that we can actually put to work to allow for real-time operational cooperation. Uh, you know, you have to kind of tackle every piece of the chain. I think the bilateral work that's been done with China so far by INL has actually been impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have a domestic use problem in China, but they have moved to control more than 140 synthetic opioids, including carfentanil, which of course is a, an enormous problem. Right. Um, and they have also moved to provide a lot more advanced electronic data that allows us to sort of get a sense of what's moving in the mail because it's a principal right. delivery system. Um, I think that one of the things that's left to be done is to encourage the Chinese to actually do more control of uh, synthetic opioids as a class. In other words, in, again, to get out ahead of what's going on with the changes in formulas. I think there's more work to be done on the mail front, uh, not just with the Chinese, but you know, not every country has the capability to share information. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, uh, as I understand it, as an outsider looking in, INL is also looking at the question of what else can be done uh, with the International Postal Union uh, to, to tackle that piece of it. Um, there's another piece that I, I think requires attention that's continuing to evolve, uh, which is, the criminal use of the internet for the sales on the dark web yeah, and their absolutely. convergence with cryptocurrencies, um, which are unfortunately very agile uh, and, and anonymous tools uh, to move money. And that's a piece that if I were confirmed, I, I, I wanna really understand where we are on that and, and what else we can do to kind of get in front of it. I know there's plenty of work going on. Uh, INL's doing a lot of work on cybercrime and financial crimes, but again, this is a, this is a pretty, uh, uh, it's an evolving area of this, right. and I think it should be of great concern to us. Thank you. Sorry, I uh, used a lot of your time, Senator. Um, INL operates the International Law Enforcement Academies. Um, can you talk about, as we look at the challenges that are facing so many countries, South, whether it's South Sudan or um, countries in Eastern Europe, we're seeing in South America corruption is one of the biggest challenges, and obviously having a law enforcement system and a judicial system that um, is able to address that corruption and helping to change what has been a culture in some of those countries is really important. So can you just, I had a chance to visit the uh, law enforcement academy in Budapest last year and was very impressed with what I heard from the people who were um, students at the academy who were law enforcement in various countries, most of them in Eastern Europe. Um, but can you just talk about the commitment of INL to continue the work there and how important it is? Thank you for the question, Senator. I'll try to be very quick this time. Um, 
Yes, the, the ILEAs are actually really important. I've only ever visited the one in, in El Salvador because I worked on the Western Hemisphere. Um, first of all, it's considered to be very prestigious to go, which I think is good. It has some, uh, some appeal. But I think part of what INL is doing with the ILEAs is helping to build into the police forces and into the academies the idea that you have to have professional ethics and respect for human rights. Um, and they're also helping to build um, internal affairs organizations and other preventative um, structures into the police forces that they work with. So the ILEAs can be very powerful, I, I think, uh, in, in helping to sort of build that in from the bottom up. And the networks that the students who attend their develop is also very important, as we heard. I, I'm out of time, but I, I do want to ask for your commitment to uh, one of the great things that INL does is to encourage the um, women um, being part of police forces and law enforcement around the world, and that's had some real success. I hope that you will remain committed to ensuring that that program not only continues, but that it grows. Senator, thanks. thank you very much for the question. I do think INL does a, does a good job of trying to build this sensibility and effort in from the ground up, and um, I will absolutely remain committed to the effort. Thank you. Mr. Hushek, I leave you to Senator Young. <laughs> and with that, Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Ms. Madison, you're nominated to serve as uh, Assistant Secretary of State for International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs. And uh, you wrote in your prepared remarks that if confirmed, you'd be a critical player in tackling some of the most challenging issues confronting our nation, including the ongoing opioid crisis. Now, Many people in my state of Indiana, uh, like so many other Americans, are, have been afflicted by this opioid crisis. In fact, in the year 2016, which is the year for which we have most uh, uh, recent data, there were 785 drug overdose deaths involving opioids. Now, that doesn't even speak to uh, the, the um, uh, the opioid uh, synthetics uh, and, and uh, the other impact this has on, on communities. If you lose uh, a father, a mother, uh, a sibling, uh, a son, it can, it can really impact a home and, and uh, that ripples throughout a community. If confirmed, I just want to make sure in light of the increasing severity of this crisis, do you commit to me and to this committee as well that you'll make battling the opioid epidemic one of your top priorities? Senator, the answer to your question is absolutely yes. Excellent, thank you. Um, as you know, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. It's much more potent than heroin. Uh, we know that secretly produced fentanyl, as well as uh, most of the associated illegal precursors and analogs are primarily sourced through China. And they're smuggled into the US through Mexico, Canada, and also through direct mail. Now, it's my understanding Mexico serves as a transshipment point, and uh, there are labs in Mexico, or there may be labs in Mexico, that use precursor chemicals that are then smuggled over our southwestern border to produce fentanyl. Uh, based on your experience and your preparation for this hearing, Ms. Madison, can you provide uh, just a, a quick update on the transnational elements of the opioid crisis? Senator, thank you for your question. This is, this is really uh, at the heart of INL's piece of this. Of course, there's a domestic piece in prevention and law enforcement and other, other elements of this, but INL's piece is this transnational, uh, transnational effort to secure cooperation and work across borders. I think, I think that the opioid 
trade, the illicit opioid trade, whether it's you know, heroin from Mexico or um, synthetics from China, relies on various means to get here, as you noted, the mail. But I do think we're seeing this process of um, fentanyl being cut into other drugs and then delivered to the US. So there's very definitely a piece of this process that is about securing the cooperation uh, with Mexico in particular because, it's, because that is a pathway. And I do think there's a pretty good basis, um, there's an actually incredible basis of cooperation with Mexico on these issues. But yes, you, you have, uh, the, the problem is that even if you tackle the mail piece of it, what will happen is the traffickers will shift over and, and use whatever means that they can. And so that avenue through Mexico or, some, or any other country that they can get their product through will, will, will remain an, an important thing for us to work on. And if I'm confirmed, of course, that would be a priority. Are, are there specific things, either now or in the near term, that you think need to be done that are not being done that can help address uh, the illicit flow of, of, of these precursors uh, or of opioids uh, into our country and therefore adversely impacting our population? Uh, Senator, as I, as I mentioned, I think that there's some undone work on the mail front. I think uh, there's some undone work on the control front. I think we need to kind of have the broader framework in place. We need to use the control regimes. And then I think the ongoing effort of working with Mexico to improve their capabilities to control what moves in and out of their country, um, the intelligence sharing um, and finding ways to expand that will continue to be important. It's just, it, it's, it's a question of constant vigilance uh, and, and those relationships and those working partnerships. Well, thank you. And I, I, I'm going to have my team follow up with you, with your indulgence, after uh, this hearing about uh, just to gather your insight based on your professional experience to see if there are other countries or international organizations uh, from whom we might learn best practices, whether it's on the law enforcement end of things uh, or treatment or prevention, uh, because uh, we tend to think of the opioid crisis as a national crisis, and indeed it is that, but uh, in preparation for this hearing, it, it, it was uh, quite clear to me that this is uh, also an international crisis, and there may be countries doing things more effectively uh, than we are. So do you commit to working with my team on that? Senator, I'd, I'd be delighted to have the conversation uh, if, if confirmed or before I'm confirmed as part of this process, absolutely. Uh, and it is, a, it is in fact a global crisis. I think you can read in a newspaper uh, in the UK or, or many other places in the world about the impact of illicit opioids on families and cities. Uh, we are not alone um, and we don't necessarily have, we haven't necessarily cornered the market on good ideas. Lastly, with the chairman's indulgence, I'd, I would just uh, like to communicate to you, I'll be submitting a question for the record pertaining to uh, your work on the issue of illegal fishing. This is something uh, I've, I've been learning more about recently, uh, has some really serious uh, consequences, uh, and I think highly unreported, underreported. And, and so um, I'd appreciate your assistance in answering those questions. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Booker. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Mr. Juszczyk, how do you evaluate the role of uh, uh, the IGAD, who's been trying for years uh, to negotiate uh, some kind of peace deals which seem to be broken time and time again? Well, the IGAD, the EGAD, um, is, is, continues to be very important in the peace process. This is composed of the countries that are immediate neighbors to South Sudan. So um, 
um, a peace process to be enforced um, would require these countries to be intimately involved. Um, the current ongoing high-level revitalization forum. Um, they, they just were meeting March, right? Yeah, they, they met um, twice in December and then again in um, in February, February. And, um, and, and are going to be meeting again later this month for a third round. Um, they still have yet to tackle the very serious security and governance issues that are on the table. And this has to do in part, as I mentioned before, with the the incentives of the parties to, to negotiate in, in good faith. Um, uh, we are, for our part, we are putting on extra pressure on um, using pressure mechanisms to make sure that they sit at the table and, and negotiate. These are the sanctions and the, um, the other measures that we've taken. We've also um, continued to support some of the, um, the mechanisms that um, will ultimately be used for providing accountability for the serious human rights and, um, and other crimes that have taken place. Um, and and the, the IGAD will play a role in this as well. Um, as, if you look at it as concentric circles, outside the EGAD countries, there are also the broader African Union and the United Nations. And we're, we're um, working in all these fora to, um, to press these issues. But in fact, these neighboring, these immediate neighboring countries play a very um, the most important role in getting this peace process moving forward. And, and could, could you, it seems like we've been doing a lot of the same things over and over again um, and not getting anywhere. Um, could, could you articulate to me a, a, a strategy born from the wisdom of our, of our, of not our failures, but of the failure to, to bring about a, a peace here? Yeah, well, one of the new, newer um, ingredients in the, in the process is putting on a, a campaign of increasing pressure on the parties. So um, it started out long ago with um, some UN-sponsored sanctions for field-level commanders. Um, last <coughs> fall, we took it up um, to the next level, and we put on sanctions on some people that were at cabinet-level positions in the government or equivalents. And, um, and um, the idea is to continue to um, increase this pressure We've also moved up in the um, in the area of a arms embargo. We still are pursuing that, um, exploring the possibilities. Can you just hold on sanctions for a second. Sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you, but so uh, according to my notes, we've got sanctions on about ten individuals in South Sudan. Yeah, and and uh, uh, for whom were just sanctioned just last year. But w w how do you evaluate the impact of of that uh, tool and, and those sanctions? Well, those sanctions with the other related items like the. Um, the, we, the recent addition of petroleum entities on the Department of Commerce's entities list and the arms embargo that I mentioned, those things have gotten some attention in Juba and in the region, I have to say. There's still a lot of... Um, the intermediate step, though, is to get the neighboring countries to also put on this same kind of pressure on the parties that they're in most close touch with. So the governments in Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya... Um, Sudan are very important to get into the process. Um, in the Bush administration, um, Deputy Secretary uh, Bob Zelik played an important role as a point person. Um, uh, you know, after a special envoy, uh, John Danforth left the, the post, uh, the vacant post, the post vacant, excuse me. Um, and I'm just wondering, we've seen from the Bush administration, Obama administration, high level diplomatic efforts. And I'm just wondering how, 
do you think that higher level diplomatic efforts or uh, 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 a deputy secretary or special envoy positions, do you think that that is something we could be ramping up now in your evaluation? Yeah, I think we definitely need high level attention. I, as the ambassador, if confirmed, will of course be able to deliver messages at the highest levels in Juba. But since this is really a, a problem that will require regional um, participation, it's important to have high-level attention from the administration. So far, um, in the past year, we've had Ambassador Haley, um, our ambassador to the UN, and um, Administrator Mark Green from USAID um, visit and deliver very tough messages to to President Salva Kiir and and others. And and also, there have been some members of the of this body that have also visited and helped us deliver strong messages. So we need to keep that, that high-level engagement very much um, active. The Secretary, Secretary Tillerson, when he was out there last month, also raised South Sudan in some of the regional stops that he, he made um, during his visit. But um, we definitely need to continue to pursue high-level attention to the problem. Well, two of my esteemed colleagues have come, so I'm not gonna go much, uh, don't wanna go over my time anymore, but I do wanna come back to this again. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to both of you for your willingness to serve, and congratulations on the nominations. Um, just uh, last week, couple weeks, uh, during the, the congressional work period, had an opportunity to visit um, places across Colorado holding a number of uh, roundtables on uh, drug abuse, uh, opiate addiction, and law enforcement uh, roundtables where we talked about uh, what's happening in Colorado and, and, and beyond. Uh, one of the most alarming and shocking uh, discussions we had was a Roundtable in Alamosa, Colorado, which is in the San Luis Valley in the southern part of Colorado, where 90% of the inmates in the local jail are addicted to drugs. Uh, where we had a discussion with a local hospital about how they're trying to get uh, nasal uh, injections of Narcan to kids because it's easier for the kids to administer that to their parents when they overdose. Uh, this is pretty heavy stuff. Uh, and uh, just, you know, we, we talk about things like uh, uh, New York Times report Afghanistan continues to produce about 85% of the world's opium. Uh, despite more than $8 billion the U.S. has spent fighting the problem, uh, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime report in 2017, China is playing a key role in the surge of opium production in Afghanistan um, by generating new strains of genetically modified seed, allowing poppies to be grown year-round. The seeds began appearing in 2015, led to a massive 43% surge in production in 2016. Ms. Madison, um, do you agree with that report? What should we be doing to address China's influence in Afghanistan's drug trafficking? I mean, what's appearing in the San Luis Valley in Colorado obviously is not coming from, uh, from something grown there, but it's uh, coming from the outside. What should we be doing? Do you agree with it? Senator, thank you for the question. Um, yes, the opioid crisis is a global, is a global problem. Um, and even though the opioids that come out of Afghanistan don't tend to make it to the US, they make it as far as Canada, so I don't think we should be sanguine about the future path of, of those drugs should, should the traffickers decide the, the market conditions are right for them to come here. Um, I think that what we need to be doing uh, is continuing to work on all of the elements of this problem. It is transnational organized crime. There are international frameworks that we can encourage countries to sign up to, 
use the frameworks and the organizations like the UN Office on Drugs and Crime to, to hold them accountable to that, to make use of those tools to improve operational cooperation and frameworks in these individual governments. Um, I think that this surge that we're seeing in production in a variety of places is, is of concern. Uh, of course, it's of concern in Mexico. Uh, it's of concern on the cocaine front in Colombia. Uh, but I think those international frameworks are the starting point because they allow us to advance the process of controlling these substances, which begins to help to sort of limit the range of motion that the, the traffickers have. Uh, and I think INLs work also, they work at a bilateral level, right? They're working in individual countries to build law enforcement capabilities, to build investigative capabilities, to help countries, financial intelligence units and other um, financially focused organizations tackle the money piece of it because the drugs don't move without the money. Um, and, and that's a really critical piece of this puzzle. Um, and the anti-money laundering efforts that, that INL works on. So I think there's a bilateral piece of it, um, and I think that, that all of those pieces have to be brought to bear uh, if we want to tackle this. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that I referred to in my opening statement that I, that, I, that, I, that I think bears emphasis is when we show up in these countries and we don't just say cooperate with us, but we say, look, we need your help, it's in your interest to work on this, it's in our interest to work on this, and we show up and we bring tools, we say, look, here's a, this is assistance that can help you investigate, it can help you prosecute, it can, that's when we actually can be successful. It's, it's actually the, the sort of secret power of INL. It has resources to come and bring tools to the table to actually help countries be our partners and help them cooperate with us. And I think there's power in that. None of these things are, um, you know, there's no silver bullet and there's nothing quick. Uh, it's about those building those enduring partnerships and building enduring capability and beginning to limit the range of motion for the narco traffickers uh, over time. Human Rights Watch estimates that uh, the war on drugs in the Philippines led by President Duterte has cost 12,000 lives. Uh, obviously, they have a, a, a drug problem in the Philippines. Uh, some of it is related to uh, China as well. How do we work both to end and help the Philippines address uh, this war on drugs, but also make sure that we're addressing the human rights issues that accompany uh, this war on drugs. Senator, uh, thank you for this question. I, I think it's a, the Philippines is a particularly challenging place. We have really, I think the U.S. government has great cooperation with the Philippines on the maritime issues um, and some other things, but we have an obvious and completely justified concern with their approach to the, to the to their war on drugs. Uh, it is essentially extrajudicial killings masquerading as justice. It means that the system is failing. Um, I think INL has, as I understand it, reviewed their entire program in 2016, shifted away from working with the police, and is focused on working with the criminal justice institutions and development um, domestic prevention programs because, as you noted, the source of the problem here is their uh, they have a domestic use problem, and built into those programs is a, is a large human rights component uh, because there needs to be. Um, and if I think over time you can begin to create an, uh, the infrastructure of the rule of law and criminal justice systems that are actually respectful of human rights um, and, and, and institutions that can appropriately do their job in, in, in a democratic context. Thank you both for your time and testimony. Mr. Chairman, thanks. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to each of you for your nomination to these positions. Mr. Hushek, I want to ask you a question about uh, protection of aid workers. 
Um, South Sudan is reportedly the deadliest country in the world for aid workers. 95 have been killed since 2013. Most of them are local staff. And aid agencies report hundreds of what they call access incidents in the country in 2016, 70% of them violent, and a number of, uh, the number of incidents increased to 1,159 in 2017, which was the highest number of incidents yet. Um, some suggest that these international aid workers are uh, increasingly alleged to be agents of regime change, and that's why they get targeted. What pressure can the U.S. put on the government of South Sudan to ensure that aid workers, especially local staff, are better protected? Thank you. Yes, um, it's con South Sudan is considered the most dangerous place in the world for humanitarian workers. Just this last several days, there were um, the first two deaths of humanitarian workers in 2018, so the numbers do keep going up. Um, if confirmed, um, I will ensure that one of the main priorities of the embassy will continue to be um, coordination and advocacy on these issues of um, access for humanitarian workers and security for humanitarian workers. Our programs, um, mostly run by USAID, um, do build in a lot of good um, um, monitoring um, to, to look for um, diversions, obstructions to the process, and so we can tackle them early. Um, we participate actively in all the coordinating mechanisms um, with the broader aid community in South Sudan and, and, and play strong leadership roles in a lot of these as well in Juba. And, um, and that coordinating mechanism is, is something that I think the U.S. Embassy there um, is very um, uniquely positioned to do. It's one of the, it's one of the largest um, um, missions there, and we have the expertise in all these areas, and of course the strong record as humanitarian donors. Um, on the security front, also um, USAID and and others um, imitate this process as well, but we build into um, the programs with our implementing partners um, a good flow of information about security conditions. And, um, and also an expectation that all the implementing partners have strong security plans as well. So these steps are important to try to address these problems, but, um, but it's one that will remain high on, on my agenda. If Excellent. Thank, thank you for that. Ms. Madison, I want to ask you about Colombia and cocaine. Um, the U.S.-Colombian relationship has been very powerful. The Plan Colombia, now Peace Colombia, you know, we have shown that partnership across different administrations of different parties have enabled significant progress to occur, but there is a dramatic expansion of coca production in Colombia, and we're seeing in the U.S. cocaine kind of back on the uptick. We spent a lot of time, I just came from a foreign—I mean, a health hearing on opioids. We talked about opioids and fentanyl here, but we're seeing cocaine um, use in the United States start to increase again. Um, what do you see that you might be able to do if confirmed to to work with what has been a good U.S. partner, Colombia, to try to figure out a way to, to do more on the supply eradication side. Senator, thank you for the question. I am, I guess, unfortunately old enough to have been here when we were doing Plan Columbia yeah. on Capitol Hill. Uh, and I remember that in those days we were talking about the potential of a failed state in Colombia. Um, and now I think we have a very strong partner in that country in, in many ways. Um, in, both deep and wide uh, cooperation. Uh, obviously, the surge in cocaine, uh, coca production, cocaine production uh, in Colombia is of concern. 
Um, and I think that it requires us to remain engaged um, on, on a variety of things, in, whether it's their eradication targeting or the other sort of elements of, of, of their program. Um, I think that there is a new administration coming in Columbia this summer. One of the things I actually think that we need to be doing is positioning ourselves so that we are engaged early and often with them on their larger strategy. Um, because I, 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 th I think that what they're planning to do in terms of eradication, and what they're, while they're having a great year in terms of interdiction and they've done a lot of manual eradication, what they're planning to do now will not keep them ahead of the curve. Um, so I think that we need to remain engaged with the Colombians. We need to continue to encourage them to sort of increase their eradication targets. And I think when you have a new administration inbound, it's a great opportunity to renew the conversation and, and seek their cooperation. Um, the Colombians understand, uh, understand how important this issue is to them. I think they're balancing a lot of issues internally, of course, with the peace process and other things. Uh, but I think that it's a great partnership and we can build on it uh, to tackle this piece of the, of the challenge. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Kane, and thank all of you for uh, participating. You had a good showing here and a lot of interest in the work that you're going to do. Are you going to ask any questions? Yeah, um, oh, go ahead. Yes, go ahead, Senator Booker. We'll have a few more questions. Just a few we'll more ahead. questions. I apologize. Yeah, no problem. Because I'm, I'm really concerned about uh, uh, the, the role of the neighbors, as you were talking about, and some of their behavior, uh, whether it's Kenya seeming to undermine our, our sanctions uh, by allowing uh, South Sudanese to, to get involved, or in Uganda, uh, who we're funding in significant ways uh, and supporting militarily. In fact, perhaps one of the, the most significant recipients of, of a lot of our, uh, our, our resources in Sub-Saharan Africa, but they seem to be supplying arms uh, uh, that, are, that are making this conflict worse. So I'm wondering, as you say, trying to pull our allies in, should we be taking a much stronger role, a much, uh, a much stronger stance against allies undermining our efforts. Yeah, so far the efforts that I um, spoke of on sanctions and the, the national level arms embargo, these are um, national U.S. Um, um, mechanisms. But the a very important key would be to the extent that we can multilateralize these to to do that. So on the arms embargo, of course, we we have been supporting an a full arms embargo in the United Nations um, since 2016. We brought it to um, a vote that it did not pass in December 2016. And we're keeping our eye on whether the, the, the balance, the calculus has changed enough to, um, to take that back to uh, the Security Council that would really make a stronger um, uh, effort on the arms flow. On the sanctions also, um, you know, you're right that there are um, these are, again, sanctions that we have put in place, uh, the recent ones at least, and, um, and you know, to convince the countries in the region to, to take it as seriously as we do. Um, you know, a lot of the um, leaders in South Sudan government and, um, and opposition, um, you know, have family members living, banking um, in, in neighboring countries. And, so. and just real quick, because uh, according to my notes, so the UN, has, uh, UN panels already reported that uh, Uganda supplied uh, Kier's regime with weapons. Um, and, and we are giving weapons to, the DOD spent $130 million to train and equip uh, um, uh, in Uganda. Uh, and, and it's, according to my notes, we've, we've given a pattern of a lot of heavy equipment, in, in, including hel helicopters and ammunition. Um, and there's concerns that they've been transferred from Uganda to South Sudan. Isn't this a serious 
undermining of our efforts in that area? Yeah. I don't know that um, U.S.-supplied um, weapons have been transferred from Sudan, Uganda to South Sudan, but, but the flow, at least through Uganda into South Sudan, of ammunition even, is, is something that has um, you know, been reported and is, is needs to be ended. If the idea of the arms embargo or uh, uh, stopping the ammunition and arms flows into the country is in order to reduce the suffering of the the victims of the civil war. So, um, you know, we would, wherever we can find places to put pressure on, we should be doing that. But, um, you know, this is, that's why one of the ideas of multilateralizing an arms embargo would be good, but right now we don't have the votes in the Security Council to do that. We have gotten positive statements in the la- in the recent months on the margins of these um, peace talks um, where um, the neighboring countries are, and the AU are starting to recognize that there need to be consequences put in place for people that are undermining the peace process. But so far, actions, strong actions haven't been taken based on those statements. And just really quick, Ms. Madison, thank you very much, Ms. Huchek. Um, just really quick, so obviously we have two, three branches of government. We have the administration and Congress. We're in charge of the power of the purse. The president proposes a budget. Um, can your work withstand a 40% cut in resources, the critical work that you're doing, if you're advising the people that actually have the power of the purse? Senator, thank you for your question. Um, I think INL still has a substantial budget. I I think any big cut requires you to just sort the priorities um, more aggressively. Um, And I suspect, since I'm not on the inside, I suspect that what went on inside of INL was that they looked at programs, looked at anything that was less effective or less impactful, uh, looked at how things aligned to the top top, um, priorities, um, and said about the business no, I, of I sorting that. it. Um, so clearly, there th- there's a crisis in this country that's growing worse. Um, clearly, those that programs that are effective might demand more resources, not less. I, I'm, as a guy who cut my gov- I was a mayor of a city, cut my government 25%. Um, uh, uh, so I, I'm a cutter uh, and ra- was able to raise efficiency. So I know how government can often do things uh, backwards, to put it politely. But when you find things that are making a difference at a time that thousands and thousands of Americans are dying, uh, shouldn't we be doubling down our efforts and not constraining them? Senator, um, if confirmed, I would, of course, support the president's budget. But what I will say um, is that your job when you're an assistant secretary, when you're in a senior leadership position, your job is to understand your programs and be the best possible advocate for them in the internal budget process. I've been inside of government agencies when the budgets were down, and that, that really is what it's about. It's about making the best case for the things that you, that you can put on the table for the national, to serve the national security interests of the country. So um, by the time a budget is, is, is put out, that, that, that's all happened. Um, so what I can say is, if I'm in this job, one of the first things that I will do is get to know these programs in, in the best possible way, get to understand their impact and effectiveness, and position myself to be the best advocate I can be for the work of this bureau and for the contribution it makes to the, to the security of our country. That was a nimble, dexterous, and good answer. Thank you. Your husband behind you was beaming with pride as he saw how you successfully navigated my onslaught. Um, you will be a very good diplomat. <laughs> Agreed. 
Thanks to both of the witnesses today. Uh, the hearing record uh, will remain open till the close of business, uh, including for members to submit questions for the record. We ask the witnesses to respond promptly, um, so any responses will be made a part of the record. Appreciate uh, your willingness to serve and the sacrifices made by your families and friends uh, to, to have you serve. And thank you for being here, and uh, we conclude this hearing.